Welcome to episode 9 of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Well, this episode is a very special one for me, as I got to speak to one of my all-time maths heroes, Dan Mayer. Dan has probably been the most influential person on my teaching career. When I first watched his TED talk, Math Class Needs a Makeover, and subsequently discovered his three-act math lesson structure, it literally transformed the way I delivered lessons and approached teaching and learning in general. Dan's blog is a must-read. It's always thought-provoking and jam-packed full of practical ideas. And through his work on 101 questions, graphing stories, and now the amazing Desmos, he continues to innovate, influence, and improve the teaching of mathematics around the world. I was lucky enough to speak to Dan for an hour, and during that time I asked him, among other things, how does he plan his lessons, can he describe a lesson that went badly and what he learnt from it, when does technology enhance teaching and learning and when does it hinder it, what exciting stuff is in the Desmos pipeline, what is Dan's take on the importance of real life mathematics, where did the idea for the three-act math structure come from and what tips does he have for teachers delivering those lessons, What was the inspiration behind the Headache and Aspirin series of blog posts? And what tips does Dan have for teachers embarking upon their teaching career? I also managed to avoid telling Dan I loved him, so that was a bonus. Anyway, before we get cracking, there are two things I'd like to bring your attention to. Firstly, any US listeners to the show might not be aware of my work on diagnostic questions. This is a free website designed to help you and your students identify, understand and resolve key misconceptions. All our questions are free and are carefully designed multiple choice questions. But before you start thinking, oh God, not another one of those websites again, students are prompted to give an explanation alongside each of their answers. And it is this explanation that's the key. Together with our powerful data analytics tool, the explanation allows you to get to the heart of your students' misconceptions. Technology takes you so far, but then the technology takes a step back and allows you as a teacher to take over and use your insight. Moreover, your students have access to explanations given by students all around the world, which means if they get a question wrong, they can go through these explanations until they find the magic one that makes sense to them. I've written some free quizzes on diagnostic questions aligned to your common core standards so you can get a taste of what we do. Just head over to diagnosticquestions.com or click the link in the show show notes and I hope you find it incredibly useful. And so my listeners from other countries don't feel left out. Also on diagnostic questions is is a brand new completely free revision section for your students. This will automatically highlight the areas of maths they struggle most with and give them access to videos, other students' explanations and more questions to try, allowing them to revise independently. Students just need to log on as usual to access it. It's completely free and my year 11s are finding it very useful in the build-up to their GCSE exams. Anyway, enough of that, let's get on with the show and spend some time with Dan Mayer. Links to everything we discuss will be in the show notes and I'll be back at the end of the interview with a discussion about how I use one of Dan's ideas with my Year 11s this very last week and also a podcast puzzle. So, I shall see you on the other side.
Okay, Dan, if we could start with the, the three math speed dating questions, if that's all right. So number one, what is your favorite number and why? So I love 32 for one reason in particular, that as a kid, 32 was when I realized I could keep on multiplying by two forever. Like I'd seen 16 a whole bunch, and all of a sudden 32, like I multiply again, and just had this sense of, of the infinite to me, and that was big. Oh, nice. That's a lovely answer. I like that. And then did, uh, did 64 take over, or has 32 always got a special place in your heart there? A special place, yeah. Everything past that, I just kind of like just more and more and extra and extra, but uh, 32, always and forever. Nice. And uh, what was your favorite topic in maths as a student, Dan? There's, there's so many. Uh, calculus and a lot of little subdomains in calculus, for sure. Uh, I remember uh, really getting fascinated by the fact that I could keep on adding sides to a regular polygon, and it would eventually turn into a circle, and various formulas about polygons would turn into, say, the area formula for a circle, and that kind of blew my mind as a kid. And did that did that translate into your teaching? Was that also the favorite topic to teach? I never taught calculus actually, and uh, which is a shame and sad for me. But um, I think that all of us who teach math or taught math, in my case, like we want to we want to testify, we want our work to testify to what we <laughs> loved ourselves as kids. So whatever you love, make sure that that's you know a part of our teaching. It'd be great words to live by for me. I <laughs> got it. Nice. And finally, um, what job would you like to do if you couldn't be involved in maths education? If I had to get booted out of math yeah. education for uh, whatever reason, uh, I, I, I love stories, telling stories, particularly uh, the movie variety or TV variety. I'd love uh, I'd love to be a screenwriter of some sort. Um, that'd be fine by me. Oh, cool. Have you ever have you ever dabbled in that? Have you ever tried your hand at it? Did a little classes here and there. Definitely applied to film school out of high school. Uh, kind of a, a, a failed attempt there. Um, but yeah, uh, that'd be my my second dream job. Oh, cool. Nice one. Well, could you, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, could you just describe the steps involved in your career to date in getting where you are now, if that's all right? Yeah, absolutely. And I got to apologize right off the bat for uh, frequently saying math instead of math. <laughs> I'll let it all that out. Don't worry. I'll, I'll add the S on the end. <laughs> add it in post-production, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I went to university for math and then... Um, uh, I got into teaching somewhat by accident, somewhat by uh, deception. This this guy, he invited me to be a part of a, a, a senior year, a year four like course where you just go into classes and you um, you mentor students there like three days a week, one hour per day. And I uh, did that. And he had me set up in a class that was just top notch, just top set. Um, kids that love math, love teachers, love authority, love me. And so I was, you know, at this critical moment to decide should I become a teacher or do something else with my math degree. I was in this experience that was just amazing. Um, and so I, I said, yes, let's sign up for teaching. I want to do have this experience uh, every day for the rest of my professional life. And so I did that, went to um, <clears throat> credentialing school at university. And uh, they then I, I realized the bait and switch, of course, that um, that that, they, th- those are, that was a rare set of students that uh, new teachers <laughs> yeah. in particular don't often teach. And so uh, with that kind of surprise, I had to scramble a bit and realizing how much students dislike mathematics and find it difficult to learn. Um, I adapted my own methods, uh, created some own from scratch. And that that got me uh, online and blogging quite a bit. Um, and so my blog got gathered a readership of, of people who also wanted to explore other ways of teaching algebra and mathematics. And uh, from there, I've done some public speaking. I went to um, Stanford for a graduate degree, most recently in math education, uh, finished that. And now I work for a company called Desmos, where we make um, tools for teachers and students to explore, learn and love math. Fantastic. And we'll definitely dig into dig into Desmos later on. And was it a hard decision to stop teaching full time, Dan? 
It was. It, it really was. I, I, I loved so many things. I feel blessed to um, have a lot of interests, professional pursuits, screenwriting, for instance. I, I love all these things, and uh, there's only 24 hours in a day. And I found um, the questions at grad, graduate school and now at Desmos to be uh, really appealing. I want to give those, those a crack, but I never lost a love uh, for teaching students, and I, I relish the opportunities I get in my job now to go in and be with students. Fantastic. Well, one thing I like to ask my guests, especially those who've taught, is to describe their routines um, about how they plan lessons. So if you could maybe think back to a lesson, either that you've taught recently when visiting students or back when you were teaching full time, it can be any topic at all. And if you could just talk us through the process of how you would go about putting a lesson together, if that's all right, what you, what resources you'd use, what questions you'd ask, how you'd structure the lesson, just put us kind of in your head for how you'd put a lesson together down if that's all right yeah it's a great question and it's, my process has certainly evolved over time um so don't let me convince you that what i say next is just how i was right out of the box um but what i try to do is uh, i think that all teachers kind of implicitly come with questions uh, to the table when they plan a new lesson they're asking themselves questions like uh some are like where is this useful in the world outside the classroom or what jobs use this or what do students already know that kind of thing yeah. and, and those questions lead us down very different paths for the same kind of concept or lesson um, so lately I try to ask myself questions like um, if this new skill that I want to teach is uh, resolves limitations of old skills how do I put students in a place to experience those those limitations um, so that's a, a big question I ask sometimes I, I, I phrase it as like if this if this math skill is aspirin then what is the headache and yes. how do I create it. Um, so an, an example of that would be um, vocabulary around math. We have there's actually math is a, a very communicative discipline with lots of specialized language and codes. Um, and so I try to put students in a place. For instance, if I want students to learn uh, vocabulary around uh, parabolas, uh, vertex, axis, slope, symmetry, uh, intercepts, that kind of thing. Rather than just like starting students off into it and just uh, beginning my lecture describing a parabola and offering terms of speech and vocabulary on a parabola before that. Uh, I don't throw that out. I don't say to myself, I, I hope I don't have to lecture today. That's not my intent at all. I ask myself, what can I do, what can students do before I explain, essentially, to make my explanation more comprehensible and more interesting to those students? And so given that the vocabulary is so helpful, I realize now uh, to help us communicate about parabolas and other, other mathematical features uh, later on, I put students in a place, in a game uh, that we have at Desmos and there's others like it, we call it polygraph, uh, where students are communicating. Uh, one student picks a parabola from a whole set of them, and then the other student has to ask questions to try to narrow in, yes, yes or no questions, to narrow in on which parabola that is. Um, and in doing so, they do that first without any specialized vocabulary, and they're asking really in, informal, imprecise questions like, uh, is, it, is it an upside-down parabola? Is it a wide parabola? Questions that are so ambiguous and, and very hard to answer. And they, they, they've fail a lot. They fail for about 10 minutes and they struggle. And then at that point, that's when I bring in my explanation, uh, the, the terms, how to use them, sample usages. And then we jump back into that lesson and they go again and they experience more success. And in doing that, my, my hope is they don't experience math as a, a, an arbitrary series of, of bullet points on some, you know, uh, districts or schools um, pacing guide, the next arbitrary thing to learn, but that they, they see that math was invented with a purpose. I see. So it's about, if, if I'm surmising this right, it's about creating a need for maths in the student's mind so that maths isn't kind of being forced upon them. You're, they're actually discovering the inherent need for it because they've experienced how difficult 
something is without the maths that helps them. Would that be right? That's really close. Yeah, I would just, I would just, uh, the word discovering is awfully loaded up in uh, <laughs> yes. conversations around math ed, and I would, I would just hasten to add that I, I don't anticipate students will discover terms like vertex or axis of symmetry or whatever your correlates are in the UK. But um, so I, I offer those. But yeah, I want students to experience it. Like some mathematician invented this. They invented this language not to torment students thousands of years later, but to actually help those students communicate. That's and one how, example. And how do you find um, that kind of approach works with with students? Are they does it take a certain type of student to be able to cope with that initial period of failure and discomfort? Is it something they kind of get used to over time, or have you had some experiences where certain students give up if they are experiencing that initial failure? Yeah, it, it, you're certainly walking a tightrope. We're on one side uh, with without any kind of productive struggle then the students uh, uh, we, we just jump into the explanation um, various students will find that extremely tedious and pointless and on the yes. other side of that uh, you, you navigate that line and other students uh, if, you, if you offer that struggle that for some students restores the purpose to math um, on, on the other side some students will find that very challenging so it's uh, there's an enormous amount. Like I, when I taught, I taught students who had, had failed algebra one a couple, one or, one or more times, basically, really struggled with algebra. And uh, for them, like it was a, it was an enormous. There was an enormous period initially of rehabilitation, of, of re- reconnecting them to what math can, is and, and can be for them. Um, and so that, that's going to be a, a part of any. Every teacher knows what the experience of getting students from a different teacher who has a different way of, way of doing math and um, having to kind of uh, create a culture in that classroom. So if we just pick up the lesson there, so the first, first say, maybe 10, 15 minutes, the students have been kind of working together, trying to describe things, and it was about a parabola. And then does it move into kind of explicit instruction from you as the teacher, helping define the terms and kind of teach the skill? And then where does the lesson go from there, Dan? At that point, we, like I've offered them this this tool, this, uh, I'm, I'm holding this 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 pill, this pain relief right in front of them. And it's like, now you should use it, try it out. See, see the power in like everybody using the same kind of language where no longer are you, are you trying to refer to like some fuzzy definition of the width of a parabola, whatever that means. But instead you refer to the intercepts as being ha- however many uh, units uh, wide or away from each other. And notice, ideally the students will then notice like, okay, uh, and I'll draw their attention to this by showing their games, uh, their, their, their dialogues, and I'll show them like, look, look at how how many fewer questions you asked, and how much more success you've had now versus before when you didn't know this. And so for me, this is this is something that I take on for myself. Like this is not an obligation of teachers. I think to to take take this on that I want students to feel that math has purpose. Students are legally bound to learn math. They have to. Um, but I I just it bothered me students would walk away thinking that, that their only interest in math was was by legal compulsion. I want them to experience math as, as many of us have, as, as a source of, of power in the world. And does, just, just again, digging right into this lesson, and I'm, I'm doing this, I'm kind of pushing this purely because the listeners and myself find it fascinating to hear how <clears throat> different teachers approach things. Is there is there a, a time in your lesson where the students are doing so-called regular practice of these skills? So just example after example after example until the skill becomes so routine, or, or is that not part of, of the way that you'd approach teaching? 
I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, if I if I fail to mention something like practice or assessment, people will just assume <laughs> yeah, that I, just... I don't I don't ever do that, and so that's, um, I'm grateful to you. Uh, yeah, so there, there, in this case, this particular game offers students lots of practice opportunities. So practice is enormously important. A uh, few serious people would dispute that. There are various kinds of effective practice, and in this case, the practice is situated in a larger task uh, of of coming to consensus on which parabola uh, someone has chosen, and so the practice has a certain purpose to it, which I, I really appreciate. Um, that's the kind of practice I love most. Practice is important. Uh, practice that is just timed or examples on top of examples uh, to exhaustion um, is not great practice. Interleave practice is awesome. And in my case, I love finding opportunities uh, where, the, where the practice has a purpose to it. I'll give you an ex- one more example from uh, Malcolm Swan. You're on Malcolm Swan from, yes. from uh, Nottingham. Uh, I was in a, in a bus with him just going to a school when I was out, out there uh, for a quarter for a few months. And, and the man just like comes up with this sort of thing on the spot. He's amazing. Um, he, he, he said, uh, break up 25 into as many add-ins, as many pieces as you want to, 12 and 13, five fives, 25 ones, whatever. And now multiply them together, he said. And so we, we all did that. And he asked, he asked like, who, who has the largest product of those numbers? And, uh, you know, there was various sizes of products. And then he said, all right, try to maximize the product you can get. And this is an example where you take, uh, multiplying numbers, like the, the, for some students, a very dreary part of practicing math, multiplying numbers together. And it's, but it's situated in this larger goal of, of finding the biggest possible product. And so students are multiplying lots of numbers together. They're practicing lots. Uh, but this extra extra goal gives it purpose and meaning. I love that kind of practice. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Um, well, moving on from that, then, what about the end of the, uh, the lesson, Dan? What, what would happen there? Would there be some kind of assessment? Would there be some kind of plenary, an exit ticket? What, how, how, would you lesson, how would you look to wrap that lesson up? Well, so what a lot of teachers do and was recommended by a lot of people who coach teachers is to offer an objective at the start of class. And so it's, it's often in, in very formal language. Like students will be able to uh, learn and describe and use in context the, the vocabulary that pertains to parabolas, let's say. Like, and I, it, could, it could be different than that, but um, I, I find that kind of approach to offer a, a very high bar for student participation early on, trying to parse this objective. Uh, whereas at the end of class, what I try to do is uh, is formalize what was to be learned. So we take this informal experience and we slowly, over the course of the class, formalize it. What was you know informal language is now formal language. What was like I'm not I'm my 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 point here is to pick a parabola now becomes your point here. Uh, my intention for you is that you would learn how to describe parabolas with very formal language and, and precision. And so there there is this. With any kind of like I don't know atypical or, or open kind of problem solving lesson, there is this risk that students will walk away not really understanding what was the point of that. Sure. Like I did this real world task about you know pizza or or, or football or whatever. Uh, and so it's important for the teacher then to, to step in, offer the plenary, and, and say this is this is what the point was there. Um, assessment for me would typically happen either at the end of class with an exit ticket or um, uh, at the very end of the week, we'd uh, assess all of our, our recent topics that we've, we've covered. And uh, homework was homework for me was I, I taught students their study skills uh, were not great. So I offered one problem for homework every night, which I imagine would put me in um, put me as a departure from a lot of typical practice, but offer one challenge problem or one uh, regular problem depending on what, what the student's self-assessment was. Um, they're worth the same amount, and then we would review each one uh, the next day in class. That was my approach. And I, I had those students every day, not, uh, not say, every two days, which might necessitate more practice in between classes. 
I see. Well, just just whilst we're on that uh, homework, because homework's a big, it's a thorny issue over here in the UK. Sure. Dan. I, I don't know if it's quite the same in the US, but there's there's a lot of pressure on teachers um, to mark books and engage in dialogue with students uh, between students so a teacher will mark and then not just put a score out of 10 or whatever but will give some personalized feedback to the student and set a follow-up question the student will then answer it the teacher will take the book in again remark the follow-up question give additional feedback and this this so-called feedback loop can kind of go on ad infinitum and it's it's one of the kind of major things that that puts a lot of teachers um off teaching and, and causes them to leave their profession what's what's your view on on marking is, is it something that's important important um is the feedback important or or you kind of hinted that maybe you you kind of going through the problem in class the next day what's your what's your take on on marking that so I, I feel it's been a while since i was a classroom teacher but not so long that i can't just feel a sense of exhaustion <laughs> yeah. just, just thinking about that feedback loop and, it, and it's it's not exhaustion that i feel like exhausted in like uh, uh, long s- staff meetings that feel pointless it's a uh, it's the exhaustion that, like th- that's really that sounds really useful to students if the feedback is is of a high quality which i'm sure it is um it sounds like just important but very hard very time consuming work and i I just can't imagine given everything um teachers have to do in preparation for classes that they would also have time for that kind of uh degree of iterative feedback um that's really interesting to me i hadn't heard that about the uk's uh, current dialogue around instruction so i would say feedback very important i've grown a little bit uh perhaps wiser, perhaps more cynical about um, marks themselves, numerical marks, just having read more research in grad school um, and elsewhere about the effect of, of numerical scores versus written scores. So if if I had to choose one of the two to lose, I would choose uh, to get rid of some kind of uh, a numerical mark on homework, keeping that perhaps for summative assessments, but in, on those homework being a formative assessment, let's say, uh, just just offering um, some text-based feedback, but again, that iterative cycle of revising and resubmitting, and then more feedback just feels like it could uh, increase multiplicatively uh, until a teacher is just doing that with their prep. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is, a lot of the research suggests it's really effective this personalized feedback. So you, you you kind of feel bad if you if you're not doing it, but there's only 24 hours in a day, you know, and it's yeah, yeah. it's it's difficult. Um, but if I could move on now to um, if you could think back um, in your teaching career to a lesson that went badly. And I wonder if you could describe why it went badly and more importantly, what you learned from it. Yeah, great question. Uh, I have I'm certain I could if given five more minutes, I could dig up hundreds, <laughs> hundreds in my head, of course. Um, I've learned a lot from failure. But w- one in particular, I think, uh, was a lesson from my student teaching years. I, it's indelible in my mind because both my uh, university instructor was there and uh, my cooperating teacher at the school where I taught was also there. So it was a really high stakes lesson for me. <laughs> and uh, we, had, we had practiced it, uh, or the students at the university, we had done this ourselves, this lesson, and it went great, of course, you know, because we know lots of math and we're civilized and <laughs> adults and all that kind of thing. So I really just kind of marched into class with this lesson rather obliviously to to you know how students who struggle with math and dislike math would, would handle it it was a kind of lesson i know i can understand the basic objective or call it it was a students it's a lab based uh lab based lesson so already we're in a, a bit of a, a spot there with the uh, actual materials uh, yes. to work with. Um, it was it was cars that you uh, you turn on and they move at a constant rate and the idea was is that um, different groups of students had to turn their cars on uh, that moved at different rates at, from and they had, they had to set them down so they, they all crashed in the same center at the same time, same location. So it involved like linear rates. 
you had to calculate the rate of your car, coordinate with other groups on their rates, and so on. Um, and yeah, I think it was a, an example of several kinds of failures that I've learned from. One, most obviously, I think, is that it was they were not ready for that kind of level of of work, either mathematically or just the structure of doing a lab was uh, we didn't have great procedures around that. So, like classroom management is a, a, a deeply unsexy topic at times, but it's so important in moments Absolutely. like this where it just it just you know we didn't have good norms and routines around how to. Get, get your car and what to do and how we do group work and how everyone stays on task and being accountable for the work. So that was a, a wake up call for me there. Um, and then, uh, also I think what I've realized through that experience and others is that it's possible to have the same exact math task. Like 50 teachers could, could, could create that task 50 different ways, basically, um, and w- with different kinds of media or the worksheet looks different uh, or their introductions different. All these different variables could be different. But for me, an important one is is how informally I start these activities. Again, I, I've mentioned this before. I think that I try to turn the informal into the formal for instance. And so uh, there, there, were, there would have been informal ways to start that activity that I did not do. For instance, just asking students just to, just to guess. Would you just guess where you, where you ought to place your car? Just make a prediction, first of all. Like the idea of prediction as being an informal version of calculation and being a way of, of drawing students into a task was just not on my radar at the time. So those are, those are examples of, of things I've, I learned from that experience and would do differently now. It sounds, it sounds a great lesson, though, Dan. Have you had a chance to revisit that one? I haven't, but I, I think about it every so often, and do I think at some point I'll have to try to redeem that one in some some form or fashion. Absolutely. Um, well, it, well, that leads leads us nicely into the next thing I'd like to talk about, which is which is technology. Um, when, when does technology enhance teaching and learning, and when does it hinder it? Oh wow, do we have like a, an extra hour and a half? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm in a position right now. I'm I'm really happy where I'm at, where I feel like I have a, a decent body of knowledge around pedagogy, and I have some very powerful technological collaborators who will who take my advice and we make things together. And so the question is not a, an abstract one for me. Like, how do we not mess this up? Yes. Like, we have some great ingredients here. How do we not mess this up? Um, and so I would say like, I've seen technology put in a position to do to do things in class that should not be done at all. Only they're doing it instantaneously and automatically. Um, like automate, aut- the automated dispensation of marks, of numerical marks, for instance. If, if we believe that the research that numerical marks have a way of focusing the student's attention on their ego and they don't learn from it, like we have a lot of online systems that do just that very quickly and automatically, just offering students, uh, you're right, you're wrong, this many points correct, this many points off, um, because that's, that's easy for computers to do. So that's, that's one example I think where, where technology can really hinder an education. Um, and we see a lot of that. Where technology has really enlivened education for me um, is, number one, in the ability to bring in artifacts from outside the classroom into the classroom. So I'd offer to your, your listeners uh, my, my three-act task uh, genre of tasks is built from multimedia and brings in, you know, your London Eye, for instance, is an awesome mathematical structure. And we uh, have, like, great mathematical analysis of that of that uh, wheel. Uh, we, we couldn't do that without multimedia. Be I can show a video of it now. Like where will this cart be? Uh, you know, after this many minutes, uh, we can't do that with a, if we're limited to just what's on hand in the classroom. So that's one. And then there's a above and beyond that. There's a whole number of of tasks that we're building here at Desmos and trying to explore. Like, what is it? How is it that technology can help? What is the role of paper, for instance, in class? Uh, and what's the role of a computer? All very challenging questions. 
And with with this technology, again, I'm a huge Desmos fan, and I'm certainly going to speak more about your three app math stuff because they, they changed the way I approached teaching it a few years ago. Um, but if with with all this technology coming into the classroom and and, in, and if it's used correctly, enhancing teaching and learning, would you also like to see that technology being used to assess maths? Because it always strikes me as a bit of a shame when, say, I'm teaching statistics and I'm using really powerful stuff like Desmos or Autograph or something like that to, to handle huge data sets and make some really interesting statistical inferences. And then it comes to the exam and students are limited by the fact that they've just got a calculator and an hour and a half, so all of a sudden the data sets that used to be 2,000 in size and now 12 in size and it, it just seems to be a little bit pointless. So how would you like to see technology improve the assessment of mathematics? So I think it's a really important question. Like, well, As soon as the technology gets more powerful on assessments, there's issues around equity, like which, which yes. students have been practicing with powerful tools and which ones haven't. So there's that issue. Um, we're struggling right now. Our tools are web-based and a lot of people don't want students anywhere near the web yes. or networked tools to talk to each other. Um, so we're like we're in a position right now to think about even crippling our tools so that it's uh, so that you can't for the sake of assessments, like not in general, but an assessment version of, of Desmos currently exists, where a student you know locks down certain functions of, of the tool. So it's a a very thorny issue. Um, the, the other part though, like we have a lot of computerized assessments currently, and um, the, the sad part is, is that there's certain kinds of mathematical thinking that's very hard for students to express on a computer. And, and as, if, if they can express it on a computer, it's very hard for the computer to I issue feedback on it. What I mean by that is, uh, for instance, uh, the, the various doodles and sketches that students would draw en route to a solution, which we know are very important to understand like how they got there and what mistakes might have been made en route. Those doodles are, are very hard to input onto a computer, number one. And if, if you could, it's unlikely that the computer would know what to do with them. And uh, it's hard for like a, or, 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 you know, verbal arguments. If um, a teacher asks uh, some younger students like to come up with an explanation for why two odd numbers always equal an even numbers and there's some, like a, there's a number of ways that students might answer that very creatively, uh, innovatively um, and accurately, but very few of them could be entered on a computer and the computer has no idea what to do with the, like the text-based, even the, even the text-based explanation, the computer can't understand like what these words mean or how to assess them like a, like a, a human can. So this, this is the, the rock and the hard place that we're dealing with is that your, your teachers in the UK, they, they are on the line to give feedback that's valuable to students over and over again. We would love for computers to help or computers can, uh, but we're finding that, that humans at, at, in 2016 are so much more powerful and capable at understanding student reasoning and work uh, than a computer is. Well, is there not like a balance to be struck there where students can take technology into the exam but have to physically still write down their arguments? Because I think that that's what, what annoys me a little bit when students are wasting precious time doing things that essentially a computer could do and the student's not gaining anything from it. So, you know, kind of routine calculations that once students have demonstrated that they can do at one stage in their career, in their in their education, there's no point in them doing it over and over again when a computer could do it very efficiently and I'd rather see the students spending their time in the exam and, and, and using their brain power to evaluate their answers and make inferences from them and make arguments and so on. So do you, do you see potential for 
students to take in maybe a computer algebra uh, software or, or a graphing package um, like Desmos, but still have the pen and paper there and use this technology to solve things and then write their conclusion down on paper? Is, is that something that, that could work in your opinion? I think that's fair. I think it'd be nice to see, you know, some acknowledgement that, that, that technology has changed what kind of math is more and less necessary in 2016. Um, and as an example, like, I don't know, we, we, we went into Texas and saw their, their state uh, end of course exam for first year algebra students. And we went, went through with the Texas teachers and we saw which, which problems that Desmos could solve rather nimbly, like graphing to find the solution done for instance, uh, and which ones that Desmos could not uh, as easily. And it really, to me, it painted a, a, a roadmap. It, it created a mandate for how we ought to spend our time in class. If solving the two linear, uh, a system of linear equations for their intersection is simple for the tool to do, um, then let's, let's do a little bit less of that in class, for instance, if it's, if it's so easy um, for technology to do that. And instead, let's spend our time doing what the, the tool finds difficult. And those items were, as you said, for instance, um, analyzing a given, uh, e a given equation, a given function, like what do the parameters in this function mean in the world, um, is a question that the computer has absolutely no idea what f of x equals 2x plus 4 means you know, in, in the context, no clue. Um, or, or as you said, like, what, what is the significance of this, or how is this, how is this model, uh, you know, inappropriate for the situation? Um, coming up with an equation is something from, from a, a context is something that, that a machine has a very hard time doing. So, in general, I'm, I'm agreeing uh, that there needs. It's not. It's not a simple decision to me. Um, there's a lot of issues here, of course, um, but there should be a different balance in the kind of questions that we ask students, given that we have free, powerful technology to use. Fantastic. And, and just before we move on to something slightly different, um, can you just give us a little taster? What are some of the things that you're working on um, at Desmos at the moment that, that particularly excite you? Yeah. So here's what I'm most excited by right now. Uh, this is I'll try to make this as concise as possible. Is that like uh, computers are awesome at, at processing formal mathematics, like numerical responses, con like a very formal uh, uh equations you can input those what i'm interested in in though is capturing students informal reasoning um, and putting teachers in a place to respond to that quickly so uh, for instance I, I'm, I'm excited that we're going to roll out sketches at some point soon like graph sketches like i i, I of course love the kind of quest questions like graph f of x equals 2x plus 4 over this interval um, I'm, I'm happy with those but i really love uh questions where students just sketch a graph to a particular question like students sketch me a, a graph of your energy level over uh versus the number the number of days left in the school year for instance and it's <laughs> it's not it's not a precise graph it's it's in formal, but it gets at a certain side of co-variational reasoning um, that's so challenging for kids. So I'm excited that we have that coming up. And um, But like sketches on a piece of paper are awesome. Why bother with an expensive tablet or laptop? And so the reason there is, is I'm excited that we're able to, uh, that we're thinking about moving towards models of, of peer feedback and teacher feedback that I hope will be very productive and p more powerful um, than pen and paper would be. So that uh, we, we know what every student has sketched in the entire classroom. And what we can do then is algorithmically send a, send you a graph that is different from yours, perhaps the most different graph from yours in the entire class, oh, and, nice. ask, and ask you, would you please interpret this graph um, and offer a suggestion or a question to the person who created it? And then once you do that, um, very quickly, no technological fuss or muss, it, it gets sent back to me who originally authored authored that graph so i mean that there's that and then teachers are able to then see every every sketch simultaneously i'd love to be in a place where teachers can then offer a quick word of feedback you know 
like uh, to signal to students, like, I need you to revise and resubmit this, and here's why they do that. And perhaps we then have I don't know if this system would be faster for your teachers, but if the teachers had, uh, they are able to iterate on feedback, hopefully faster than they would with a, a paper and pencil submission, resubmission kind of process. Cool. That sounds that sounds fascinating. What's the kind of time frame on that? Then, when do you reckon we might see that? Uh, I couldn't give you a time frame. It's a it's it's at the top of top of our minds, though. I think the biggest challenge is not the technology. We have uh, the best technologists in the Silicon Valley here, but it's more uh, the the pedagogy and the sense of how would teachers, how would this make a teacher's life easier and not harder? Uh, same for a student. That's the the real trouble is conceptualizing how the tech works out in the classroom. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. Well, I'd like to now move on to one of my absolute favorite topics. And that's, and again, I'm fascinated to know whether this is something that's that's true in the US as well. There, there seems to be an obsession, and there has been ever since I've been teaching in the UK, of, of trying to relate as much high school mathematics as possible to the real world. And I, I'm always wary of that. And I, I always think that if you end up trying to bring too much real, so-called real world mathematics into the classroom, you end up essentially lying to the kids and dumbing things down so much and they, and they don't buy it and it ends up being maths that they, they can't relate to and it, it, in my experience it ends up turning them off and it interested me that you mentioned before that activity that Malcolm Swan uh, shared with you that little number one and the, the, like two of my all time favourite activities that the kids buy I've abs- that kids really buy into have absolutely nothing to do with the real world at all like I have one very similar to Malcolm's there where kids are, are asked to write down any three numbers that they choose and then they add up the first and the second number add up the first and the third number and add up the second and the third number and they give those three totals to someone else and the other person's job is to try and figure out what, what the original three numbers were and that, that simple start spawns a whole world of mathematics that the kids buy into and it never at any point during that do they say well what's the use of this well, where's the real world application and the second one that's my one of my all-time favorites is based on uh, one of your amazing three out maths um, activities and it was done by um, Andrew Staddle I hope I'm saying his name right there from, from the US um, trash get ball where you just sim- simply starts with a video of somebody throwing uh, screwed up paper into a bin and then the video stops and then the students start asking questions and doing calculations and modeling and so on and once again nothing to do with the real world whatsoever just throwing paper into a bin so after that kind of long ranty introduction from me i'm just interested what what's your take on on real world maths finding its way into the classroom yeah, super question. Very, I have a lot of a lot of uh, unfocused opinions here. Uh, first, I hope that my, my uh, I, I've established credentials with the the real world enthusiasts through some of my activities I have online, like the three act math tests are, are like they take place in the world outside the classroom. So I'm I'm not, you know, some uh, a stodgy university research mathematician <laughs> who despises you know all these uh, real world applications. Far from it. But I have some reservations. For instance, one, I don't know what quote unquote real means necessarily like they're they're real is such a relative and squishy term like for instance uh are are the populations of crocodiles real to a student in alaska for instance or you know the like polar bear habits are they real to the student in florida um very different climates like that what what is real is is very relative um even across you know between our two english-speaking countries like a real world lesson would be a very different interest and relevance uh, to students depending on where you were 
Um, taxes are very real to adults, but a lesson on taxes might not feel real to a student. That's one objection I have is that it's just not a very well-defined term, first of all. Um, and second, I think that uh, I, I, there's a, an article I should uh, we should put in the show notes by Samuel Otten called um, Cornered by the Real World, which is to say, uh, essentially, that um, you set up you set up what the class the class incentives are to learn math, essentially. Like it could be around a grade or it could be in a lot of cases, like because it has real world utility. And students catch on, catch on to this. And they, we basically train them uh, to look for certain features of math that, that make it valuable to the class. And if over time we train them that math is only valuable if it is, quote, real world, whatever that means, we get into a lot of trouble when we come to certain areas of math that that really were developed as like offshoots or detours from uh, other mathematics that might have been useful, but it's valuable in its own right. But it doesn't have it doesn't have like a, a core real world interaction uh, or application. Rather, we we corner ourselves uh, for people who teach you know uh, uh, upper levels of secondary math. Like they know how little of what they teach could actually be described as real world. And as you said, uh, you know th- those real world applications problems everyone knows who looks at them students and teachers they, they know that they're false so it's a long winded uh, so my wind up to say like what is it that what is it the, the incentive structure what is how do teachers communicate why maths is valuable to students and for me I, I have my answer which is to say I think that math is so powerful because it allows students to puzzle and unpuzzle themselves I in my class in my teaching um, in my work now I value most this sense that students with just their brain and a pencil and a piece of paper can create a puzzle for themselves like I did when I started drawing more sides on a regular polygon and maths also allows us to unpuzzle ourselves so my only my only indicator my only benchmark for if a lesson has been successful or not is if the student has this look on her face with the eyebrows slightly upraised and a bit of a, a crooked you know smile or a crooked frown that says i'm puzzled right now i want to know the answer to this question and that can come from anything like i, I love that example uh, that, that you mentioned of the uh, basically simultaneous equations um i love so much of what the the enrich uh, website has on it and they're not they're not real world but what they are is they're real puzzles puzzling and uh, that's what I value most about mathematics currently I think I think you're right there Dan because as soon as you kind of abandon the notion that you have to try and make everything relevant um, in terms of what so-called real world you then you no longer limit yourself because you can make everything puzzling to students in an engaging way but you can't make everything that they study in high school maths real world related so I think once you abandon the notion and once you stop trying to make everything real world you kind of freed up as a teacher and again I found I mean in the start of my teaching career I was trying to make everything relevant to the real world and the kid like when we were doing trigonometry I was coming out with all kinds of nonsense trying to convince kids that they might want to be architects and know the height of this and the angle of that and all kinds of stuff but I think once you're honest with kids from the start and say okay maybe this doesn't have any strict real world um, applications but I'm going to give you like you say I'm going to give you a puzzle that's that's hopefully going to engage you I'm going to give you a problem that needs solving and I'm going to help show you tools that are going to help solve that problem I think that's when the kids start to buy into it a bit more and you end up having a more honest relationship I think with your students certainly more honest certainly I would I would I would only say like there is a sense of, of freedom and re- relinquishing this this in, this constraint of real worldedness but you do if you commit to making maths puzzling you are picking up a different constraint that is in many ways I find harder like it's it's so much easier to just kind of staple or paste on some real world units to some you know random periodic equation 
uh, much harder to ask yourself, what is it that, that's puzzling about periodic equations? So it's a, it cuts both ways. Yeah, that's that's a that's a very fair point. Um, I was reading your one of your most recent blogs um, blog posts about I think it was called gas pump ripoff or something along those lines. And one bit of it really struck me um, about you talked about the importance of exposing students to to counter examples that break models that prevent overgeneralizations. I wondered if you could just kind of just talk a little bit about that because I think that's something that's that's very important in mathematics that students are used to spotting patterns and once they spot a couple of things that seem to work um, they just kind of overgeneralize and assume everything's going to work and um, if if we're doing a, a lesson on, for example, simplifying ratio, the ratios that they're going to be given are going to simplify and so on. And I, I really like the emphasis you put on things, uh, put on counterexamples. Um, and again, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about that, if, if that question made any sense at all. I, I'm not sure I could elaborate on the answer that you embedded in your question, Craig. I guess that's a, about what I'd say, uh, the rationale for it, not overgeneralizing. Um, I'm excited about two things I'll add on to this. One, creating some problems, um, some tasks that show the real world misbehaving, so to speak, and asking students to identify where the misbehavior is. So one example is these uh, these gas station pumps, which I've never given a second thought personally, uh, you know, that, that they might be ripping me off. The numbers spin madly, and I just assume it's in a constant ratio. Uh, but what I what I did then is I filmed several gas pumps, and I, I digitally edited one of them um, so that it, it slowly pumped less gas for the same amount uh, for the same at the same rate of, of cost um, over time. So, yeah, but your eyes might tell you it, it still looks to be about the same, but the graph reveals and other ways of calculating reveal. No, this is not proportional, and it's actually it's actually ripping you off. So, I'm, I'm looking forward to creating some more of those. My next one I want to create is a, a bouncing ball. We know, um, you know, that the height of the ball after every bounce exists in this uh, exponential relationship. I want to show students uh, the path of several balls bouncing. Only a couple of them have been digitally modified, so that they they don't follow that rule and ask students to decide which one seems off somehow and then use mathematical analysis to determine uh, which one actually isn't. I'm excited about that genre of task. I'm also excited about it, it, with, with Desmos. I want to cr create a system where students like not, they don't just like do uh, 30 exercises, you know, where they apply a linear pattern, let's say, uh, but they also have to create, uh, they contribute to a class, a class exercise set basically. So they have to come up with a problem. Um, they design a problem after having created so many. And in, in designing a problem, you know, students really have to consider, like, what is it that makes this kind of problem this kind of problem? What makes a linear pattern a linear pattern? It's a different way of thinking about it. And then those those problems will all go into a classroom pool of, you know, problems built by us. You know, each student has their own problem they built, and other students will go in and either solve them or say, no, this one actually, like, this is not a solvable linear pattern, what you have here, which would be, uh, again, valuable feedback. Cool, that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, that, that brings me on to, uh, again, I couldn't let you go without mentioning this, Dan, you, your three app math tasks. Now, I um, I, I, I probably discovered these, I'm in my 11th year of teaching now, so it's maybe in my kind of fourth or fifth year of teaching, and I made it my mission to travel around the UK as much as possible, making sure as many people knew about these as as, uh -huh. as humanly could because it's just a mind-blowing way of engaging students but also getting them doing proper mathematics i think that's the important thing it's not a gimmick there's there's proper modeling going on proper predictions calculations and so on so my first question is i just want to know where the idea came from and secondly what what are some of your favorite three at maths tasks and, and why 
Yeah, so it, it, it began just really iteratively. At first, I was noticing that multimedia was so powerful to um, awaken students to the world around them and how math applied. I loved bringing in images and videos. And so I'd post on my blog some like random clip from a movie and ask, like, how could we, how, what could we do with this? Like, what could we do mathematically with this? And so it was very unstructured. And then I started noticing, as I mentioned, like I, I wanted to be a, a movie maker, screenwriter, director, whatever. So I, I, I was attuned to kind of the rhythms of stories. And stories often take place in three acts. I noticed that some of my best experiences, most productive experiences with these uh, tasks with students, they had a similar kind of three-act structure that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, yeah, so the, the three-act structure involves that first act where, just as in movies, all we're doing is we're setting up the characters, the context, and the problem, crucially. The problem in a lot of uh, math textbook problems, the main question comes at the very end of the task, after students have all the information, all the tools to solve it, and finally... We figure out what the question is. Not so with this three-act structure. The question is introduced right away before any tools or even any information. And then in the second act, that's when teachers help. They offer uh, information that might be helpful to solve it, uh, tools mathematically. And, and then crucially in the third act, and this is unusual even for a lot of the best modeling uh, curriculum that, that existed when I started doing this, is we, we validate the answer in the world itself. So we don't just like say, yep, you got it. The answer is this many tickets or this this much time. We show the whole thing playing out uh, in real time. And students have this sense of, wow, math really has power. I think you're right. And if I can just interrupt just for a second there, that for me is the power of it. That that final act, the, the revelation of showing them, not just telling them the answer, but showing them the rest of the video or revealing the hidden bit of the picture or something. And also, there's two bits I like about that. Firstly, very rarely are students right. And I think that's really, really important. Whether it's, I, I was observing um, a, a young teacher I mentored doing a lesson, a three-act math lesson involving um, filling up a sink and a, a rubber duck was rising to the top and it was how long is it going to take to, to fill this sink up. And none of the students got it right. And, but that was ideal because first it taught them that it's not important that you get it spot on and secondly it opened up a whole new discussion about why why nobody had got it right and that brought in a whole extra kind of string of mathematics and yeah it's just that they just open up kind of students minds and and just bring in lots of other skills that yeah I think is really really powerful and important to students. And you and I wouldn't say that, that math shouldn't have right answers. It does, of course. But this is a, a particular kind of task, a, a moment that's rare in classes where we admit to students that math, while it's better than your intuition uh, at answering questions, it's not it's not perfect. And there are ways in which the world will surprise and confound our mathematical models. And so what, the way I see the three-act task is that it, it exercises certain, certain muscles, certain, certain mathematical muscles that are often atrophy uh, given a, a steady diet of, of text book tasks absolutely and yeah if i know it's it's like choosing some of your favorite children this time but what, what would be some of your favorite three at math tasks if you had to pick a couple out yeah uh super bear is one that's really popular that i like a lot it involves just this giant gummy bear and oh, I asked, yes <laughs> i asked students you know how many regular sized bears would fit that and it's not simple to decide like volume is a tricky thing to estimate um, and then there's uh, others like Taco Cart, uh, which might not be as relevant to students in the UK, but an example where uh, it came from my life where we, we had to choose two different routes, uh, one that was across uh, sand and one across a sidewalk. Uh, there's some right triangle mathematics involved there. Um, that's a popular one. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, is, it is tough to call. A lot of these are really autobiographical and just in the same way that teachers bring math from their lives into the classroom. This is my way of doing that, not as a, as a word problem, but as close to the actual, the actual usage of math as possible. And do you find that 
in your experience, three out math lessons work equally as well with, like, say, a class of high attaining students versus a class of low attaining students versus a mixed attaining class? I don't. This is one surprise I had in doing some of my graduate level researches. Uh, I, I studied this this process, and what I found was that there are. I, re, I my research took me to a class of students that was very high performing. I, I researched students uh, at Stanford that had, had were not math uh, math teachers; they were English teachers, but they had done very well in school mathematics. And I found that the that what the three act math tests do that's nice for for low attaining students, uh, low achieving students, is that. Uh, it, it changes the script a little bit. It says, like, this is a, like, here we're going to ask you for an estimation before we ask you for a calculation. Um, we're not going to tell you the info yet uh, and ask you first to speculate what info might be relevant to this task. It, it flips the script a little bit in a way that um, it resets student expectations. They expect this to be impossible and difficult. But uh, with the high-achieving students that I researched, they did not enjoy this as much. And my best hypothesis for that is just that uh, they had been very successful and felt very safe with a particular way of doing real-world math tasks where they're told the information. They know which chapter the, the, the question is in. They know what the teacher just taught them how to do. So they just take that information and they put it into the, into the, into the procedure. Uh, or the formula, and get an answer out, and they receive their their credit, their kudos, their uh, their mark for that. That's a that's a very powerful you know system of incentives that you know I come along and say like, well, what info do you think would be important? And it's like, well, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> you you know you tell me the info that's necessary, and I'll I'll repeat the procedure. So I, I did find that, which was uh, interesting to me. That is very interesting. And and if we've got a teacher listening who wants to give three out math tasks a go, have you got any advice for them? Recently, a teacher in uh, Australia who's been really pursuing this angle, Mark Smith is his name, he offered this advice, which I found really powerful. Every three-act task basically can be turned quickly and easily into a word problem, essentially, like a, a, a typical textbook task um, with, with some loss of some good features, but not not completely. So what I would recommend people do is, is show the act one, which is ideally uh, very easy to do with students because it's a video, they're intrigued by it, whatever. Um, that, part, that part could be described as a gimmick by some. Um, and then what, what you do is you ask them for their, their questions, their estimates. And then in the, in the tricky part where, where teachers don't know quite how to support students in finding answers, just give them the word problem version of the three-act task. Just, just hand them the word problem at the same time you normally would, assuming that you would offer them word problems in your class. If you don't do that, this will be very, very foreign. Um, and then after they've solved it, don't tell them if they're, if they're right or not or show them the answer in the back of the book. Play the act three, which validates the answer in a different way. And so basically, the act two is the part that a lot of teachers struggle with. Like, when do I help? When do I offer the info? And this idea from Mark Smith is just like, just, just get, assign the, sign the word problem as you normally would, but do these two things in addition or besides. Act one, to introduce it, and act three, to validate it. I found that powerful. That's nice. I, li- I like that a lot. And I- I'll just throw in my, my two pennies worth of advice here. Please. I think <laughs> when I, when I, anytime I come across anything that I really like, I get obsessed with it and I overuse it. So <laughs> we were doing, my students were having three app maths every lesson. And like anything, it was, it was too, it was too much for the students. But right. at the same time, other teachers would try it once and then leave it for maybe two or three months, then try another one. And that's when, when you talked about routines before, I think that's really important. But when students are used, get something that they're not used to and it throws them out of the comfort zone behavior can suffer sometimes the expectation students don't know what the expectations are of the lesson and so on so my advice to anyone listening is if your first time you do it it doesn't work out so good 
don't give up, persist and persist, but crucially, build it into your regular teaching. So maybe I, I found this kind of happy balance for me was doing a task once every two weeks. That was the kind of regular sure. kind of goal I set myself. So it, it wasn't too frequent that the students got fed up of it, but at the same time, it wasn't too spread out that it, it became an unusual lesson where the students didn't know how to behave. So I think building it into a regular part of, of your teaching routine, for me anyway, would seem to be the way that, that it worked the best. Right, right. Um, yeah, if we can just move on now, Dan, if that's all right, just to talk about your uh, your headache and aspirin series, because this is something that, that has fascinated me and something I've been following since you started it. And I just, um, and I might be a bit embarrassing this, but I'd just like to read you a quote, the quote from you, actually. And I think this, this sums, sums it up nicely. And I'd just like you to expand on this, if possible. Um, One of the worst things you can do is force people who don't feel pain to take your aspirin. They may oblige you if you have some particular kind of authority in their lives, but that, that aspirin will feel pointless. It'll undermine their respect for medicine in general so could you just describe for anybody who isn't aware of this kind of series of, of blog posts that you've written what is the headache and aspirin series and perhaps if you could relate it to an, uh, a particular maths topic and how this would help kind of engage the students and make it make, make it matter to them yeah sure definitely um, so my this comes from just my realization at one point my commitment and it is a commitment it's, it's not you know other people can take different commitments, like to the real world, for instance. My commitment is that that maths, uh, every skill in maths wasn't wasn't invented randomly or arbitrarily or with the intent to torment or punish students, you know, centuries later. But instead, it, it, that every new piece of math, new skill in math, came about as as the resolution um, of pain caused by the old skills. Like the old skills ran their course, they found their limits, they hit a wall, and now I have to develop a new way of thinking about mathematics or a new skill or a new question to be answered. And in thinking about that, that leads to a very different kind of lesson planning than a commitment to, say, the real world, as we've talked about. It forces one to ask, like, so what? So why was this invented? Uh, uh, can I put students in a place to experience why it was invented? I'll give you one example. It came out of a workshop yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, the parentheses around coordinates, uh, ordered pairs, you know, points in the plane. Yes. They feel pointless to students sometimes to such a degree that any algebra teacher will attest that that parentheses are the first thing to go when students are are, um, writing up tests or homework like they'll just drop the parentheses why are they necessary like if i told you to graph the point two comma negative five you would know what i was talking about and if i if if you asked me to write down the coordinate for that point in the plane like if i wrote down two comma negative five you would know what i was talking about the parentheses are a sort of thing that feel arbitrary and purposeless and when you enter in marks into the equation and we're deducting a mark for you know for not including parentheses that's the sort of thing that can turn a student very cynical very fast towards mathematics yes. is, is my commitment. And so what I, what I do, and this is something I, I never did when I was teaching, is ask myself, like, why did we invent parentheses? What problem was parentheses trying to, were they trying to solve? Or perhaps you call them brackets, I'm not sure which. Um, and so uh, th- noodling on that for a little bit, I realized, oh, you know, you know what we do that is because it would be, it helps separate uh, a, a string of numbers that have commas in them. It separates them out nicely so you know where the points begin and end. So like a, a string of numbers with commas in them is not just a, a set of integers. It's like actually a, describes points. And that leads to a very different kind of activity or interaction with math uh, than, say, the real world commitment. What it does is it, it, it forces me to put on the board for an opener 
would you folks please graph the following points? And then I write down two, comma, negative three, comma, five, comma, four, comma, zero, <laughs> comma, negative ten. And this just this long string of integers separated by commas that, that may or may not be even an even number of integers. It might be an odd number. Like there, It might be impossible to do that. But it's, you can't really tell as easily without those parentheses. And then after a moment of struggle where students are feeling the pain of like, which which coordinate did I graph already? Where am I in this? Then we, then we introduce the parentheses. And this, this whole thing takes, you know, five minutes on an opener. I draw the parentheses on there then, and suddenly they feel marginally more purposeful. The parentheses, instead of being this arbitrary, me forcing you to take aspirin without a headache, it's like now it's now it's pain relief. That'd be one example. That's nice. And what I'll do um, after this interview, I always do kind of a final thought at the end. I just record on my own, and I'm going to describe how I use um, this exact exact thing that um, for factorizing quadratics, or I think you call them trinomials. I think I think that's right. Sure, and, sure. and I'd never found a way before to, to to for students to see the point of doing that. But having read one of your blogs, um, I put that into practice. So I'll share those experiences with with listeners at the end of the podcast. Well, Please. just um, just one more question from me, Dan, if that's okay. Um, if you um do you have any advice um or or no more specifically what what would you include on a teacher training course that that perhaps isn't there at the moment or or to put it another way what advice do you have for for aspiring teachers that perhaps you wished you'd known when you were training yeah, excellent questions. Somewhat different, both of those. I would love to see better collaboration at the university level between um, mathematicians and math educa- uh, and, and math teacher trainers, basically math educators. Um, you know, there's often a, a firewall between the two. But really, like I've I've come to realize how valuable content knowledge is, uh, even more valuable than I thought it was. I, I thought it was valuable. I pursued a degree in it. Um, but just like the sense of the, the history of math and knowing where things came from and for what purpose they were invented is a question that mathematicians may be able to help answer more than the math educators, perhaps, you know, more pedagogy. Uh, as far as, like, my advice is to a, a struggling teacher who's out of university now or doing Teach First or something, um, some other program, um, I would just – for me, it was really helpful when a blogger who no longer blogs named Benjamin Baxter said on his blog, never assume anyone even cares. Like, that sense <laughs> – like, for me, I was such a such a, a overachieving, nerdy student in school. I just assumed that other students were like me and just cared deeply about – learning, getting grades, pleasing parents, that kind of thing. And the more that I can assume that no one cares, even if they may care, but just assume as my baseline that I've got to justify why why the law has given me 180 hours of, of your time this year. If I can assume, tell myself, I have to justify that. That leads to some very interesting classroom decisions that, that I I just don't I don't come to if I assume like you care about this or you're forced to care about this you have to be here that'd be my my advice to myself uh, if I was to start over that's nice that's fantastic well to finish Dan um, it's just time for the big three now so if someone was visiting either your blog or or, one, or Desmos or wherever you want for the first time have you got three specific places that you direct them towards and I'll include direct links to these in in the show notes yeah, I think I would I would love for people to just read the a, a couple quick posts. One uh, one post introduces the the three act structure with a, a few more examples from from popular culture that might help clarify it. Um, the three acts of a mathematical story um, that kind of kicked off this whole project. And then um, if if maths is, is uh, aspirin, then what is the headache and how do we create it? Is another post that uh, gives a little better detail on what I'm talking about right here. Um, and then uh, teacher.desmos.com. I would love for people to check out our work there, especially marble slides is uh, 
one of my favorite things I've ever been a part of making. Um, just a fantastic lesson for teachers of linears, parabolas, exponentials, any kind of function, really. Um, there's a lot of fun to be had there. Great for transformations. Those three. That's fantastic. And as I say, I'll place links to those in the show notes. Well, Dan, just firstly, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. But secondly, just thanks for all the work you've done over the years. And from a personal selfish point of view for being an inspiration to me. But I know um, that you've just inspired teachers all over the world. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Craig. Take care. Okay. So there was my interview with Daniel. I really hope you found that as interesting and as fascinating and useful as I did. In terms of trying to pick a takeaway from it, well, the obvious thing to say is if you haven't tried Desmos or you haven't dabbled in a three-act maths task in your classroom, then that needs to be your top priority. In fact, I'm going to say stop this podcast now, forget listening to me, and just get yourself over to those two websites. And there'll be links to those in the show notes. But as I hinted at in the interview, I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about Dan's Headache and Aspirin series, because I had some experience of this with my Year 11 class only the other week. So, um, obviously read Dan's post introducing his rationale behind it, but, but just to try and summarise... Um, students need to see the point of something to buy into it. And the mistake I used to make in my teaching career was was that trying to think that the point of something always had to be some real-world application. And that's all well and good for some topics, but for, for some, you're really struggling to, to see the actual point in why students are doing certain things. But as Dan says, everything in maths has been invented for a reason. So let's take the, the example of factorising quadratics. Now, in the past, I've been, I've, I've had the kind of year 11 group and year 9 group who've, who've kind of just done it with, without question, right? Sir's teaching us how to factorise quadratics. These are the rules. This, we do it. Everybody's happy. We get the question right. But I've also had a number of groups who have found that difficult. And as soon as students start to find things difficult, they then start asking, what's the point in this? Why are we bothering with this? When will this be ever any good to me in, in life? Blah, 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 blah. And then you know you've lost them and you're fighting a bit of a losing battle to get to get them back. Now my year 11 class that I've got this year are absolutely lovely students but there's a few of them who do tend to question why we're doing uh, certain things when they when they find it difficult. So I thought right factorizing quadratics I need to get this right so I'm going I'm to try something a bit different. So basically I just followed the scripts that, that Dan suggested and I'll just just describe what happened there. So Dan suggested you, you, you put a quadratic expression on there so x squared minus 7x minus 18. And then say to the students, all right, pick a number between 1 and 10 and substitute it into your expression. So say they, they stick 5 in, so they do 5 squared minus 7 lots of 5 minus 18 and write down their answer. And then say, all right, pick, pick another number. So maybe they stick 8 in, 8 squared minus 7 lots of 8 minus 18 and so on. And then say, all right, here's your challenge. I want you to find me two numbers that when you substitute it in, give me a zero answer. Now what's nice about this is, it's a fairly innocent sounding task, and those of you who have been listening to me for a while know I'm a massive proponent of the low barrier, high ceiling way way of teaching things. That students need a low barrier to entry, and if students haven't had success at a certain task within the first, say, 20 seconds or so, you're in danger of losing them. Well, this is an example of a low barrier way of, of getting into factorising quadratics because it starts off with some relative, relatively simple substitution. And you can even pick a nice low number like 3 for them or 2 for them and do a worked example to start. But crucially, students get themselves fairly comfortable with the substitution. 
And then comes the frustration, because how are they going to find these zeros? And sure enough, one of them might stumble upon nine, and nine works, nine gives them a, an answer of zero reasonably quickly. But if you tell them that there's two numbers out there, well, then they're going to really be struggling to find that second one. I mean, is it a decimal? Will they start trying 0.5s? Will they dare venture into negatives? The chances are they'll be going for a good 10, 15 minutes before anyone finds the second one, if they find it at all. And that's the key. That's the headache. Students have got a headache then, right? Because they know there's a second number out there. They know that they've got a certain tool to, to be able to find it, substitution. And that's a tool perhaps they learned two or three years ago. But what happens if you then hint to them that there's a better tool, an enhancement, an upgrade available that will help them locate this second zero a bit more efficiently? Now, I did this with my year 11s, and I promise you, I know it sounds like I'm talking rubbish here, not one of them asked what's the point in this, because they could do it. They could do the first bit. They could do the substitution. And I'll tell you another thing, and again, I promise you, I promise I'm not making this up. I cross my, I'm literally crossing my, well, I'm not literally crossing my heart, but I've, I'm, I'm doing a sign on my chest here. Please believe me on this that one, they actually wanted to know what the more efficient way of doing it was, even though this may seem an, an, a fairly arbitrary thing to be able to do. So that then they were invested in this technique that I could then teach them, this way of factorizing, this way of factorizing this, this quadratic or for the US listeners trinomial into two brackets, and then how these two brackets one multiplied by the other equals zero, so what value of x makes the first bracket equal to zero, how that technique could then help find this second magic number that enabled us to find the zero. And there they bought into it. So they could see a purpose to the task that in my previous 11 years of teaching simply hadn't been there. And with some students, it doesn't matter. Some students don't need a purpose, but I think they're, they're the minority of students. And this way, this aspirin and headache series, creating a problem, creating some discomfort for students, and then allowing maths to provide the aspirin, I'm a big, big fan of. Because again, it breaks the kind of constraint of having to try and find that incentive in the real world. Because flipping it, where's your, where's your real world application of factorizing quadratics? You know, what, how does, how's that gonna matter to a 15 year old child? Well, with this headache aspirin series, there's, there's a simple way that it might just matter. Now, the only disclaimer I'll put on this is your students have got to be willing to experience a little bit of frustration. And it's, as Dan, Dan put it nicely, it's walking a tightrope. It's knowing when to stop it. It's knowing when to draw the line. I wouldn't keep them going for an hour substituting numbers in because they'd be suicidal and there'd be a riot starting. And I found that 10 minutes was about the right amount of time from the start of the substitution process to the bottom, to the end of it. And then we had a very successful lesson on factorizing quadratics that was probably the most successful I've ever delivered that. So there's a whole series of these out there. And the other thing is it's they're not that difficult to come up with yourself. And my advice is if you're trying to do this, just think, when are you teaching a math skill, what problem does this math skill solve? Because if it doesn't solve a problem, it wouldn't have been invented in the first place. It wouldn't have been developed in the first place. So the chances are, it's however boring a skill it may seem, it does serve some purpose. Once you find the purpose, try getting the students to solve a problem without that tool. They'll experience the headache, and then you're there as the saviour with the aspirin. So that's why I'm a huge fan of that. Anyway, that's enough of me. Now, um, I wasn't cheeky enough to ask Dan to, to provide a podcast puzzle, so I'm afraid you're stuck with me for a podcast puzzle this week. But I promise it's a good one. So I will see you after this jazzy little interlude. OK, 
Okay, so I know you're probably sick of hearing my voice by now, but here I am with uh, Podcast Puzzle. Now, this is taken from one of my favourite sources of, of maths puzzles, and that's the New York Times wordplay blog, which once a week becomes number play. And just Google it, New York Times number play. And I think it's every Sunday or so it comes out, but there's always a brilliant little maths problem, and then loads of people discuss it and look for extensions and so on. Well, this is one from a couple of weeks ago, and it's called Alibaba's Cave. So I'm just going to read it as it was. Alibaba found a cave full of gold and diamonds. A bag full of gold weighs 200 kilograms. A bag full of diamonds weighs 40 kilograms. Alibaba can only carry 100 kilograms at a time. A kilogram of gold costs $20 and a kilogram of diamonds costs $60. What is the greatest amount of money Alibaba can earn for the gold and diamonds he can carry out at once? And he has to do that in one attempt and in one bag. So if you missed any of those numbers, just rewind the, the, the podcast and listen to my voice again chatting about this puzzle. But have a go at that, and as I say, I would wholeheartedly recommend you Google New York Times number play for more puzzles than you could ever imagine. So there we have it, another episode complete. All that's left for me to do is to once again thank my special guest Dan Mayer for giving up his time to speak to me on the show and also podcastthemes.com for providing the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the episode. A final reminder that if you're one of our brand new US listeners, if you head over to diagnosticquestions.com, you'll find some free common core standards aligned quizzes that you can try out on your students and read their explanations and thoughts behind them. And also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, then I am at Mr. Barton Maths. I've got some fascinating guests confirmed lined up for the next few episodes, so hopefully I will see you soon. Take care, thanks so much for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.